You've all seen The Crown, right? The TV show about the British royal family. So at least you know the basics of the story of King Edward VIII. Fell in love with an American divorcee and chose her over the crown. And the speech he gave on the BBC that he was relinquishing the throne is remarkable and maybe noble that he chose love over the title. But it turns out, for a time, Edward thought he could have both the crown and the American woman. There's a speech he had written where he appealed to the British people to decide his fate. In the end, that speech went undelivered. And that's the name of Jeff Nussbaum's new book about the speeches in history that were drafted, all ready to go, but no one ever heard them. Today in Radio West, we're talking about the stories of the undelivered speeches in history. After this. Keep your KUER membership up to date with My KUER. It's an online portal for you to manage all aspects of your support. Update payment or contact information, increase your monthly donation, or just pitch in a little extra. You can view past donations, print a tax receipt, and reach out to us about your account by sending us a message. Log in or create an account today at KUER.org slash MyKUER. Jeff Nussbaum is a kind of collector of speeches, speeches that were talked about and drafted and ready to go and then went undelivered. His interest in this makes sense when you learn he's a speechwriter himself. He wrote for President Biden, wrote for Vice President Al Gore. In fact, he was working with Gore when this interest, this obsession with undelivered speeches began. And he pinpoints the day, the night, actually. Election night, November 2000. This is an ABC News special, The 2000 Vote. Campaigns are exhilarating, but they are a grind. Every day, you know, you're pushing a boulder. And then on election night, something changes where all of a sudden you've worked so hard for someone and then it's out of your hands. Millions of people, perhaps well more than 100 million people are out voting today at every level of government in the country. And for the first time, you begin to contemplate, what happens if my candidate wins? What happens to me? What happens to America? What happens to the state? And so there's this almost liminal moment where the outcome is both decided and unknown. So first, in Florida, in the presidential race in Florida, we simply believe it is too close to call... And that's where all of us who worked on the Gore campaign were on election night 2000. We headed downtown to the Veterans Plaza in Nashville, Tennessee, and we waited to hear what America's future would be, what our own personal futures would be. And there I was writing speeches for Al Gore on election night 2000. Not the lead speechwriter, the junior guy, but at one point I held in my hands three different speeches prepared for three different outcomes. One was a victory, one was a concession, and then, curiously enough, we thought there may be an electoral college win coupled with a popular vote loss. And so there was a modification that explained why an electoral college win is still a win, something America has learned a couple of times in the last several elections. And then, for those people who are old enough to remember, Florida went into Gore's column, and then it went back to too close to call, and then it went to Bush's column, then it went back to too close to call. And by about 3 a.m. in the morning, it appeared the election wasn't over, and so Gore didn't speak at all. So Nussbaum was left, holding these three undelivered speeches. As he puts it in his book, whatever it was Gore had planned on saying that night is lost to history. And what he means by lost is literally lost, because he can't find them. He's gone through his files. He's looked through old floppy disks and nothing. But for Nussbaum, the takeaway was that these speeches, all three of them, now had become historical documents because each was prepared to mark an occasion that didn't happen. So history went in a different direction. It started an obsession 
with finding other places in history, not just political history, but military history and other world events that could cause history to turn in one direction or another, I started looking for places where I could find undelivered speeches that fit that mold as well. And yet the speeches that set this book in motion can't find them anywhere. As a speechwriter, I love speeches. But when I was initially putting this book together, a lot of people who I talked to said, oh, so it's just a book where you're publishing all these speeches you found. And as I dug in, to me, the most interesting part was using those speeches to re-remember and recover these chapters in history that we look back on and say, oh, yeah, it happened the way it happened because that's how it had to happen. And realizing that, no, Things don't happen because they have to happen. They happen because people of passion and conscience and skill really make decisions and those decisions can move history. So part of it was seeing the speech as kind of the tip of the historical spear. The speech is just the small thing that reveals the larger conflict, the larger decision-making process. And then the second part is really about persuasion. You know, speeches are one of several tools that leaders have. And so one of the things I try to do in this book is deconstruct how these leaders intended to persuade people at these moments of choosing and consequence. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, Jeff Nussbaum is taking us through the stories behind some of these never-heard speeches he's been collecting over the years. The book is called undelivered. And we began with the question of just how relevant really is a counterfactual in history anyway, because the stories in the book all leave you wondering, what if? What if Richard Nixon had delivered a speech where he refused to resign? What if Dwight Eisenhower had to apologize for a defeat at D-Day? If President Kennedy announced the military had destroyed the nuclear missiles in Cuba, what if Hillary Clinton gave a victory speech in 2016? I mean, what is the real value of these what-if moments? I love this question because I spoke a while ago to a a conference of history teachers uh, and historians. And one of them asked me and they said, during this, during your writing process, were you worried that you were writing a counterfactual history. And it never even occurred to me that I should be worried that I was writing a counterfactual history. In fact, my publisher joked that um, uh, liberals love history and conservatives love counterfactual history. And so you've given a book to both audiences. And indeed, it's not a, and indeed it's not a political book. It, it really, even though my politics are quite clear, uh, it features Democrats, Republicans, non-political events. It doesn't, it doesn't try to score points. It tries to share history. So, so, but I was asked this question, are you worried that you're writing counterfactual history? And it never struck me that I should be worried about writing a counterfactual history because I wasn't imagining a different America. I think, mm. I think historians don't love counterfactuals because, you know, what if the South had won the Civil War? Like, that's sort of an imagined America that starts to serve different people's goals. Yeah. I, I wasn't trying to serve anyone's goals. What I was trying to do and why I feel this is in some ways it provides a counterfactual history, but in more substantial ways it isn't, is because these were drafts that were prepared and the leader who, who had to choose, whether it was Nixon or Eisenhower or, or Helen Keller, they, 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 they envisioned what that path would look like. It's not me envisioning what a different future would look like. Mm. They also had to hold in their heads two different futures. And so by revealing the future that they were willing to take a couple of steps down before either events intervened or they changed their mind. I feel like I'm not pushing the bounds beyond simply illuminating what the first steps down that alternate path might have looked like. Well, let's let's jump into some of these moments, uh, some of these undelivered speeches. Um, I, I wanted to start with, you, you put them in sections and there's a chapter or section anyway um, you describe as words that are too hot. Um, this is when the words of a speech get they get tempered, stripped away in some cases. And this is based on on the moment, based on expectations or uncertainty. Um, 
so yeah let, let, let's talk about that and, and and i guess this gets us to a principle of speeches that you mentioned how the goal of a speech in almost all cases of course it's to persuade but you say there are times when an audience could possibly be shaken too hard they could be challenged too much and this is this is kind of the that that balance that you have to find as you explore in this in this section talk about words that are too hot what happened is as i looked at the all the speeches i had and i had found they almost sorted themselves into categories huh. And when I saw it, I thought, oh, this makes sense because this is these are the reasons why speeches go undelivered. And words that are too hot, I started the book with this section because it, it felt the truest to my own experience, right? Which is if you believe something so strongly, if you have a cause you care about, you want to take everyone who doesn't share that belief and shake them by the shoulders and say, can't you see? Can't you see why this is so important? How can you feel differently than me, right? When you are deeply committed to something, you almost approach people who aren't as committed to it with outrage. Hmm. And yet, the goal is to bring them along. And if you really stand on your soapbox and you spew fire and brimstone, you run the risk of alienating the people who are potentially open to persuasion. And that's why in this chapter, I feature two speeches, um, two that were toned down. This is John Lewis and Martin Luther King, who at the March on Washington each toned down the speech they wanted to give. Yeah. And, and one person, um, this is Wampsutta Frank James, who is, was the leader of the Wampanoag uh, Native American tribe in Massachusetts, who simply refused to give the speech that he wanted to give yeah. uh, because the, the organizers of the dinner at which he was to speak, which was the 350th anniversary of the Pilgrim's Landing, didn't really want to hear the truth. Yeah. And so there's two examples, right? One is, if I can't give the speech I want to give, I'm going to walk away. That's mm -hmm. what Frank James did. And actually, as a result, the speech almost became more well-known because of it. You know, and in the other case, you know, Lewis and King toned it down and frustrated themselves, but, but actually earned a wider audience because of it. Let's talk about Wamsada Frank James. You, you mentioned he's president of the Federated, uh, Federated Western Indian League, invited to speak at the 350th anniversary celebration of the landing at, of the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock. And one thing we should mention, as you do in the book, he was not a radical, even though what he has in mind to say, you know, they invite him to speak. He's like, okay. And he gets working on this speech. Um, and the story that he wants to read into the record in this speech, of course, is how European explorers, you know, captured Native Americans, sold them into slavery. I mean, you, you, you mentioned that what he wanted these people to hear was not one beginning of the country, but this other story. There were two beginnings of the country. Talk, set this up for us. This is the United States preparing for the 350th anniversary of the, of the Pilgrim's Landing, as, as you say. And, and it was marked by all sorts of commemorations. There was a model of the Mayflower built. There were sort of flyovers of the roots. Um, this became a big event in, in Massachusetts and in, in New England. And, and it was going to be finally commemorated with this big, big ceremonial dinner. And they thought, who better to invite to speak than, than um, Wamsutta Frank James, um, he's a, he's a teacher, he's a musician, he's a reasonable guy. Um, he is, you know, a, a descendant of, of the leaders of this tribe. How perfect. And James goes at this task and decides, you know, in, in a year of celebration of one narrative, I'd like to take 10 minutes and tell you a different story. Mm. And he consults contemporaneous accounts of the pilgrims who have stolen stores of corn from the natives who they encountered and and he and he and he wants to he, he wants to tell the real story and when the organizers of this dinner see his draft they don't want to hear the real story anymore they they want they want to keep this lovingly cultivated image of brotherhood and camaraderie when in truth that's not actually what happened when the pilgrims landed um, they were desperate they scavenged they stole and and James wanted to share that. Mm. And th this, again, set off a firestorm, basically saying, the organizers saying, like, we can't have this. We, we, this, is not, this is not what we're here for. Um, one of the things we should mention is for those 
people who experience this book, Jeff Nussbaum's book, in audio form, on Audible, will be able to hear some of these speeches speeches actually <laughs> delivered this time, um, of course, by actors. Uh, Jeff, you want to say something about that part of, of, of the audio book? Yeah, please. One of the really fun things I got to do in the process of putting together this book was to help think about what the audiobook would, would sound like. And so you'll hear plenty of me. You'll hear plenty of me reading the narrative. But we cast actors to read for many of the undelivered speeches. And we bring in archival footage where we have, um, where we have good footage of what, this, uh, what the ultimately delivered speech was. And so it, it's, it's the, it, it almost, when you listen to it, it's, it's almost a book plus a podcast you know, plus, plus a documentary. Um, so James wants to say at this big celebratory dinner, it's with mixed emotion that I stand here to share my thoughts. This is a time of celebration for you, celebrating an anniversary of a beginning for the white man in America, a time of looking back, of reflection. It is with a heavy heart that I look back upon what happened to my people. He then proceeds to lay out the history as seen through the eyes of the Wampanoag, right? And the history as seen through the eyes of the Wampanoag is lived through their experience is not a positive one. You know, it's, it's a loss of land. Um, it's a loss of autonomy. And so he prepares to tell that story. And of course, the organizers of the dinner want nothing to do with that story. And in fact, the person who filled Wampsada James' place at the dinner when James refused to speak there, you know, wore a, a Sioux war bonnet, which is kind of the big Indian headdress that you think of in, you know, cowboy and Indian movies, right? Which has nothing to do with the, the Indians of, of the eastern, you know, east of the Appalachians in the United States. So, so you know, ultimately the, the people at the dinner heard the caricature, not the whole story. But because of the cancellation of that speech caused such an outroar, uproar, it, it led to what was termed a national day of mourning for, for the tribes and became an annual event. And every year now, the undelivered speech is read. So the act of not delivering it probably got it heard more than the act of delivering it actually would have. Let's say one more thing about that speech. I wanted you to talk about the moment that he... You, you, first of all, you also say that um, Frank James really... Um, hit each of the Monroe-motivated sequence points, that he was really good at this. Um, but, but he says that he wanted to help create a more humane America, a more Indian America. Say something about where he, where he comes down at, at the end of this speech. This is really powerful. I, I had a chance to t interview several times his son, who passed away a couple of years ago about this speech and about his father. And he, he reiterated, my father wasn't a radical. He didn't set out to be a radical. He didn't want this conflict. What he wanted, and he was an educator um, and he married a white woman. I mean, he was, not, he was not a separatist. He was not a radical. But he really came around to this idea that, that we could still live our lives in what he described a more Indian way, which was more in tune with each other, more in tune with our land, more in tune with our stories and being able to really understand what our stories were. I mean, it was, the, it was an early iteration of what we think about now when we talk about reconciliation or being present, right? All these, all these kind of pop trends, um, he really articulated as a way to make um, America a, a land that doesn't just run roughshod over the other cultures it encounters, but a place that incorporates the best of each and allows us to pull those into our lives. And I found his speech really, really affecting. We are determined. And our presence here this evening is living testimony that this is only the beginning of the American Indian, particularly the Wampanoag, to regain the position in this country that is rightfully ours. You heard Adam Gifford as Wamsada Frank James in that reading. 
Jeff Nussbaum is with us today. We're talking about his book, Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Here's an easy way to boost your monthly gift to KUER. Switch to a direct donation from your bank account. Your support won't be interrupted due to lost cards or expiration dates, and when you do switch, you'll help KUER save thousands of dollars each year by offsetting steep processing fees. Most importantly, you're strengthening your support of the essential local news and NPR programming you depend on. Make the switch today at KUER.org membership. This is Radio Westenberg Fabrizio. The writer Jeff Nussbaum is with us this week talking about his book, Undelivered. It's about the speeches in history that were, you know, drafted, ready to go, but for different reasons, no one ever heard them. Nussbaum says each of the speeches provide this alternative history, and they tell us something about a moment in time, but they also, he says, have something to say about the present. There's a section in the book that explores the speeches that reflect um, a change of mind or a change of heart, the times, as you put it in the book, where someone sees these choices that they have before them and they and they make a choice. Um, we have to talk about Richard Nixon in this sense. This is where his undelivered speech fits. It, he gave plenty of – he delivered plenty of speeches. This is one that he didn't. Set this up for us. This was, uh, of course, August 5th, 1974. The speech that he delivers was a speech of resignation. Um, set, us, set it up, though. The, the plan, of course, was the, for the president to announce his resignation. And this – so speechwriter Ray Price goes to work on all of this. It's this top secret. But then, of course, Nixon starts to change his mind. Exactly. Here's now Nixon. The writing is on the wall for his impeachment. Yeah. Um, these tapes he's recorded have to be handed over to the judge. And he can't decide if he wants to stay and fight it out or if he wants to resign. I mean, he doesn't want to resign, but if he has to resign. Right. And he has a speech prepared. And he thinks, maybe if I just lay all the facts out there, the American people will see my side of things. And indeed, in the non-resignation speech, he even has a line, something to the effect of, look, you know, I've listened to these tapes. I'll admit, some of it doesn't look good for me. Mm -hmm. Honest, open, right? You know, metaphorically naked in front of people yeah. and thinks maybe I, can, maybe I can fight this out. But ultimately, he decides not to. And an interesting thing that you see in the resignation and the non-resignation speech is that in each case... He provides the same justification, but it was a justification in search of a decision. And the justification is, we've had a president assassinated in John F. Kennedy. We've had an, a president basically hounded out of office in Lyndon Johnson. And therefore, for the sake of continuity, I, Richard Nixon, am going to stay on because mm -hmm. we shouldn't have presidents just getting, getting cycled out of office as rapidly. Like the world needs continuity and stability. And he ultimately, when he ultimately does decide to resign, he basically uses the same set of facts. Come back to the undelivered speech now that, um, that he doesn't give, obviously, where he wants to fight, um, where he's defiant. He says he will see the constitutional process through. Say a little bit more about that, that speech. Yeah. He almost wants to lawyer it up. Yeah. Um, he, want, he wants to really take everyone through his thought process. Um, even though he says in this speech, it is not my purpose tonight to argue my case. There'll be a time for that later. Rather, I want to explain to you how I intend to proceed. And then he proceeds to argue his case, what he's just said he will not do. Right? He says, I want to tell you about one new piece of evidence I've discovered. Which I recognize will not be helpful to my case but which I have instructed my attorneys to make available immediately to the Judiciary Committee. What he's doing here is the clearest way, when you want to persuade people who may not agree with you, one of the best ways to do that, then as now, is to say, 
You have a point. Let me take a moment to explain why I did not make this public sooner, although I should have. In May of this year, I began a review of the 64 tapes subpoenaed by the special prosecutor. We see this in polling and dial groups all the time. If someone is debating someone, the best thing you can do to bring some of their supporters over to you is to say, you know what, my opponent has a good point here. And then you agree with something that's you know largely immaterial, but you're showing, look, I, I concede there's a point, and that, that really helps. And so here Nixon concedes a few points, right? I'm going to follow the law. This doesn't really look good for me. However, I firmly believe that I have not committed any act of commission or omission that justifies removing a duly elected president from office. If I did believe that I had committed such an act, I would have resigned long ago. So he sets this up and says, I didn't do anything wrong because, trust me, if I'd done something wrong, I would have resigned. And then he basically says to America, this is going to be painful for all of us. We're going to go through this process, but the outcome will be a more stable form of government. And this was really the argument that he hatched on, right? This is, this is the justification in search of a decision. The justification for him staying on was stability. And the justification for him leaving was stability. Therefore, I shall see the constitutional process through, whatever its outcome. I shall appear before the Senate and answer under oath before the Senate any and all questions put to me there. Jeff Nussbaum, tell us the story of Helen Keller's speech. This is um, a speech that she would have given. This was in 1913. It was at a suffrage parade. Um, I, I, let me just set up the sort of the Helen Keller that that um, that had this speech prepared. She's, as you say in the book, she's entered adulthood. She is frustrated because she's, you know, she was, I guess, sick of talking about, you know, her inspirational childhood story that that everyone wanted to hear. She wanted to sort of say something more potent. She wanted to characterize her disability in in different terms as a civil rights issue. Indeed. She was really famous in 1913 yeah. because people had read and seen The Miracle Worker. Um, she had you know, she had published the story of my life. So she was, she was a celebrity. She was very well known. And, but she was frozen in the public's mind as this child who had overcome and learned how to speak. All of a sudden, you know, we get to 1910, 1911. She has something to say. It's not simply that she's capable of speech. It's that she really has something to say. And so one of the things that happened is Right When people talked about her disabilities, she was brilliant and inspirational. But when she talked about her political beliefs, newspapers and others infantilized her again. Mm. You know, They said she was being used, that she really didn't understand what she was advocating. Because what was she advocating? Socialism, mm. women's suffrage, birth control. I mean, she was really, she was left-leaning and she, and she really had something to say. So she's here... She's getting ready to speak at this, at this rally for women's suffrage, which was to be held on March 3rd, 1913, the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. So the suffragettes planned this march on the day where there would be maximum attendance in the crowd and from the press. Um, and it was, there were floats and parades and costumes, about, about uh, you know, 5,000 5, marchers. And what happens is they are set upon by an angry, drunken mob of about 500,000 onlookers. Um, lit cigarettes thrown at them. They're, they're pulled down off the floats. The crowd kind of surges into the parade route and separates the floats from one another. So these women were really, really fearful. I mean, it was a, it was a terrible scene. And, and what happens is that the parade was supposed to kind of see its way through and then end with speeches. And what happens is because of the chaos and disruption, and, and by the way, you know, the only, the only men, if we can call them that, who, who came to the defense of, of these women um, were a Boy Scout troop and students from a local agricultural college. Wow. Uh, the police didn't help. 
you know, no, there were no cooler heads in the crowd to prevail. And so it was really this terrible scene. So the speeches that, that were supposed to be given don't get given because the women are shaken up, their clothes are torn, you know, they're, they're, they're in shock. And, you know, it, there kind of is like a brief uh, indignation, you know, rally. But, but Keller doesn't get to deliver this speech. And she doesn't get to say what she intended to say, which is, I'm proud to share in your brave work for the emancipation of women. From my victorious fight against the dark, I bring you good cheer in your worldwide battle for light, for freedom. I'm deaf, but I hear the glad tidings of women's liberation, which shall soon be flung abroad through the land. I am blind, but I see the dawning light of a new day when there shall be no woman enslaved, no child robbed of the sweet joy of childhood in the war of daily bread. All earthly opposition cannot stay our onward march. One of the things you write about in, in this section is how the understanding that a speech can motivate people, can, can move people to act, has been a cause of concern throughout history. And you mentioned, for example, uh, Aristotle was worried about rhetoric, you know, as a tool can be misused, as I think January 6th probably is pretty good evidence. Um, That's right. So I wanted to ask you about the the balance, because there are some lessons here in the Helen Keller speech, which will get us to Hillary Clinton's undelivered speech, even though it's in a different section, this connected for me, the the risks and benefits of stirring people up. Um, you know, when you make the risk and when you get the benefit, will you, will you just talk about that part? One of the reasons Aristotle wrote on, on rhetoric is because people thought that speech making and rhetoric were almost a form of a dark art. How is it that with just your words, you could get someone to change their mind? How, how is it with just your words, you could get an army to march into battle? And so Aristotle, right, this is where we get logos and pathos and ethos. He thought the best, the best way to defeat that dark art was to help people understand what strings in their mind were being pulled. Yeah. Or was, were, were, was the logic string being pulled? That's logos. Was the characterization string being pulled? In other words, that, that's ethos. Not, it's not ethics. It's do I trust this speaker? Do, do, they fee, do they seem like a messenger who's worth following? Mm. And then most importantly and most potently um, is the emotional string being pulled, is pathos. And so that's really what Aristotle tried to do is let's deconstruct what's happening in your mind so that you can be aware so that you can be aware of what's happening when you are hearing this speech. And this gets to your question, which is knowing that rhetoric can move people to action. How, how, do, how do writers, how do speakers approach that? And, and I think that one of the things, you know, responsible writers and speakers do is they envision the outcome. Mm. They say, okay, what do I want this outcome to be? Do I want, people rallied and angry, you know, or do I want them to, you know, work within, you know, X channel or Y channel to air their grievance appropriately. And, you know, it's not often that you have a, an audience that is, you know, on the verge of, on the verge of violence or chaos, but there are times, there are times. And recently we've seen speakers um, be really irresponsible about that. Yeah. So, I, so I'm not sure that this answers the question, but it does point to one of the things that, that I talk about in the chapter with Helen Keller, who I pair with the anarchist Emma Goldman, yeah. which is why is Emma Goldman, and the chapter focuses on the speech she did not deliver at her trial for inciting a riot. She chose not to speak at her trial for inciting a riot for fear that her speech would incite a riot. So why does Emma Goldman go to jail for inciting a riot, even when there was no riot, 
when her compatriots, who actually threw bombs, actually committed assassinations, did not face that same level of scrutiny. And it's exactly what you said. It's that we sometimes fear the words more than we fear the actions. Jeff Nussbaum, he's a writer and speechwriter. His book is Undelivered, the never heard speeches that would have rewritten history. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Weekends on KUER are filled with the same high-quality news and engaging conversations you hear every weekday. Keep up on the latest news with Weekend Edition and All Things Considered. Indulge your curiosity with Radiolab and Hidden Brain. Or dive into the rich storytelling of Snap Judgment and This American Life. The best in NPR news and entertainment awaits you this weekend on KUER. See what's in store at KUER.org schedule. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. We're talking with the speechwriter Jeff Nussbaum today about a few of the speeches he's collected over the years that went unheard for different reasons. Richard Nixon and Helen Keller and King Edward and President Kennedy. He also provides these insights on the speechwriting process like techniques of persuasion, active versus passive voice. The idea, he says, is to reveal why some words make history in the first place. The book is called Undelivered. Let's talk about the speech Hillary Clinton didn't deliver, a victory speech, of course, 2016. Because when you're talking about the risks and benefits of stirring people up, it seems like a good example. Start with with Jake Sullivan. He was Hillary Clinton's chief strategist. And, of course, everyone pretty much thought she was going to win that day. Yeah. And, and, and and he believed the victory speech that she would deliver because, of course, she was going to win. Shouldn't overthink the moment. What did he mean? His argument here, should Hillary Clinton win, was like, let's not overthink this. Like other people will be able to speak to the historic nature of what's occurred. Let's let's let this be a nice moment. Um, but let's not try to accomplish too much. And partly what he was trying to protect against is, is that, you know, Hillary Clinton um, leads from the head, you know, and, and leading from the head means, you know, explaining to people why I won, this is what I'm going to do, this is what it means. And, and he felt that that would be too much. You know, let the let the moment speak for itself. Let the victory speak for itself. Yeah. There were two impulses that she was considering um, that you you write about in the in the book. And and one of them is Jake Sullivan and others thought that okay, look, this is a clearly this is a a, a moment in history when the, the first woman becomes president, and it's been a, a dreadfully hostile, ugly campaign. So we should heal the country. That was one impulse, right? Um, Like, let's close this chapter. Let's move forward. So that was one impulse. But there was another one that you write about that was also there. And this came from uh, communications director, Jen Palmieri, who believed that this was a moment when I don't know how you would d- describe it, but you, you you do in the book that she should maybe assert herself that it was maybe this was a moment, f- not necessarily just to say, "Let's move forward and heal." T- talk a little bit about what's going on here. Paul Mary basically came through this experience. She had worked for Barack Obama and then jumped right onto Hillary's campaign, and observed, you know, when Hillary went to certain parts in the country, quote, they couldn't even hear her voice. Hmm. You know, people who had been left out or not benefited by our political system, who were angry or disengaged or, you know, or angry and disengaged or, you know, angry and engaged. And she felt that she felt that Hillary's opponents had made her a divisive figure and she needed to use this moment to speak directly to those people and say, 
I'm going to dig in, you know, I'm going to make your life better. And so almost in this moment of victory saying, withhold your judgment, Mm. you know, saying, A, I've won and that, and, and B, you, even though you, you may not like me, Mm. you're going to be happy. I won, right? That's a kind of a more assertive message. And these, these fishers run that ran through the campaign, right? What are we, this dance they were doing, what are we going to say to the Bernie Sanders supporters? What are we going to say to the, the Trump voters who, you know, a couple months earlier, she effectively called deplorable. Like what, what am I going to say to all these? What am I going to say to the elite media that thinks I should have won in a landslide and this election might've been close. And so all these fishers run right through the campaign into the drafts of the victory speech. And the act of writing this victory speech falls to Dan Schwerin. And he too is trying to figure out how does this all fit together? And so what you get is a victory speech that's solid, but it's missing something, right? It's missing that emotional loft. And this is, this is what Hillary was thinking as well, is she needed to find some touchstone, some moment, some story that would, that would demonstrate the power of what had just occurred. And she finds it in the story of her mother, which she retells in a, in a very different sort of way. Her mother had had a very difficult life, uh, basically uh, abandoned by her parents, um, you know, became an indentured servant, was sent across the country um, with her even younger sister when she was about eight years old. And the, the powerful emotional moment comes from Hillary at the end of this speech, imagining a conversation with her eight-year-old mother. I dream of going up to her and sitting down next to her, taking her in my arms and saying, look at me, listen to me. You will survive. You will have a good family of your own and three children. And as hard as it might be to imagine, your daughter will grow up and become the President of the United States. You mentioned in the book how even when we know how dangerous a particular historical moment was, um, what we didn't know is often chilling. And that really comes through in the speech that John F. Kennedy doesn't deliver um, related to Cuba. Set, Set this up for us, if you would. So here we are in October of 1962, Kennedy receives word about this Soviet missile buildup on the island of Cuba. And the question is now what to do about it. And he divides his advisors into an, what they call the XCOM, an executive committee of the National Security Council. And one of the first things the XCOM is tasked with doing is determining a course of action. And one of the things they're tasked with doing in, deter- in arguing for a course of action is to prepare a speech announcing that action to the nation. And I love this as a leadership tool, right? They, they basically have two courses of action, airstrikes on the missile sites or a naval blockade. Yeah. And these, these are two groups within the National Security Council. By the way, in describing them, this is now the first use in history of the term hawks and doves. And so they write a speech. And this leaves us after Kennedy chooses the naval blockade, this leaves us with a draft that was prepared to announce the airstrike. And the most powerful thing in that draft is a a line that's in parentheses. Mm. And it says, follows a description of first reports of action. Now, speechwriters will often put a parentheses in the speech when there's something to come that we don't have yet. A report, a poll, a piece of information... You know, something that just makes it present. But here we have Kennedy writing or or being written for Kennedy follows a description of first reports of action. But what we're waiting for is a description of what happens after 400 airstrikes are launched on nuclear missile sites that we only in retrospect learned weren't all being built. Several were already operational. And not only were they operational, but command of those missiles was in the hands 
of the operators on the ground. In other words, they didn't need to call back to Russia to get authorization to launch. So even though we know how close we came to nuclear war and nuclear annihilation, even with that knowledge, we didn't realize how, how close. Yeah. We didn't realize that choosing this other course could have set off a, a truly devastating nuclear counterstrike. Now, whether that's would have been the vaporization of our base on Guantanamo Bay or vaporization of the eastern seaboard, we, we don't know. But we do know is, is follows a description of first reports of action. Within that parenthesis, it could have been humanity's suicide note. The other part that's really striking about the, about the speech is the part written for Kennedy where he hereby accepts responsibility for this action um, because he acknowledges that in this tragedy will be a loss of innocent lives on both sides. That's another really powerful moment. For the United States government, I hereby accept responsibility for this action and pledge that all appropriate efforts will be made on request to assist the families of these innocent victims. Neither Cubans nor Russians as individuals can be held accountable for the extraordinary and irresponsible conspiracy which has required this action. The acceptance of responsibility is something that comes up several times in the book because I find it both so powerful on an emotional and moral level, but I also find it really fascinating as a leadership tool. So we have Kennedy accepting responsibility, basically saying, I made this decision and the tragedy inevitably, you know, is, is the loss of life, on, innocent life on both sides. In the book, I also have a chapter on Dwight Eisenhower yeah. apologizing yeah. for the failure of the D-Day yeah. invasion. Yeah. Part of his leadership, his, his leadership kind of approach was to envision and apologize for the failure of every engagement into which he sent troops. And there's this speech writing technique that you refer to. I just want to mention this yeah. of the difference between passive voice and active voice. This is where it really comes alive. Yes, that's right. In fact, he writes this. Now we're talking about Eisenhower. He, he writes this apology for D-Day failure and he writes it very, very quickly. It's short. It's on a, you know, one piece of paper and in it, but he makes, he makes time to make one edit and he has written the troops have been withdrawn and then he crosses it out and writes, I have withdrawn the troops. Mm. And then at the bottom, he writes, the decision was mine alone and underlines mine alone. And right, and so the troops, the difference between the troops have been withdrawn and I have withdrawn the troops is, of course, he's gone from active voice to passive voice. And I love it because leaders are, are actors. And that language of leadership is muscular. It is active. And so when Kennedy takes responsibility, when Eisenhower apologizes for the failure of the D-Day invasion. When Emperor Hirohito, half a world away in Japan, takes responsibility for the destruction of his country, we're seeing both incredibly powerful moral statements, but we're also seeing incredibly effective leadership statements. Which finally gets us at a point I wanted to ask. Ted Sorensen is the one that we think drafts this speech for for President Kennedy. And you work through this question of was it Ted Sorensen who wrote it? And in the end, it turns out it was. But the question was, why did Ted Sorensen forget that he had yeah. that he had written this monumental speech? And you, you, you sort of wondered, is it because it was so terrifying that he just erased it from his memory? And you say that these moments shed light on a path that we may again have to travel. Um, and that that moment, that speech, this was in the 1960s, but it's still relevant today. It is. It's, it's very relevant today. In fact, one of the final edits I made before the book went to press was initially I'd said it, it sheds light on a path we may have to travel with countries like North Korea. Of course, now, and one of the last edits I made was with Russia and North Korea, that we are still living in a moment where countries 
that seek to be taken seriously, that feel that they're not getting necessary respect, and that have nuclear weapons at their disposal are threatening to use them. And so Kennedy's actions in this moment are, are deeply illustrative um, and really resonant. The, the point about who wrote the speech, and, and by the way, this is really the only part of the book that has, has led to some debate because Ted Sorensen denied adamantly having written the speech. He was a conscientious objector during World War II. He said many times, I, I couldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it. And so there is a there is a chance that he had drafted most of the blockade speech and then pieces of that were lifted and became the airstrike speech. But I went deep down a rabbit hole. I commissioned an FBI forensic analyst to look at the handwriting on the drafts. And I have found that that Sorensen certainly, if if not having written all of it, wrote a lot more of it than he was willing to acknowledge. And I think it is one of these things where Robert Kennedy himself said, the, the amount of pressure we were under... Knowing that that civilization may have hung in the balance, it plays with your mind, and you do you you know I, I think when Ted Sorensen said when he was alive that he didn't write it, I believe that he believed what he was saying. Um, I think in these moments where you are exhausted and the weight of the world is on your shoulders, you can forget, and and I think that's what happened here. Do speeches work in the same way today? They don't quite work in the same way, but they still provide moments where we, as a people who hear so many different things, we consume different media, we read different stories, they do provide at key moments, whether those are moments of tragedy, whether those are moments that are on our national calendar, like the State of the Union Address, they do come together and at least provide a moment where we not, may not be as a, as a nation singing from the same hymnal, we're at least listening to the same hymnal. And, and in that way, I think they still provide um, really, really valuable and important moments of potential, if not unity, potentially a shared narrative. Jeff Nussbaum, thank you very much. Thank you. Jeff Nussbaum. His new book is Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. Let me mention the actors you heard on the show today. Lance Blair, Adam Gifford, Brian Bowles, Glenn McCready, and Kathleen Chalfant. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter, at Radio West. The program produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.